Welcome to The Last We Fake, a podcast of autobiographical, or at least confessional-seeming, fiction from Los Angeles. I'm Alan Rifkin, fiction writer, former contributing editor to LA Weekly and Details Magazine, and a lecturer in the creative writing department at California State University, Long Beach. Season one, titled The Drift That Follows Will Be Gradual, threads together a reporter's cherished past. 1980s Los Angeles, and his mentally ill millennial son's determination to claim his own season in the sun. This week we present episode 11, Museum of Art, from the drift that follows will be gradual on the last we fade. Museum of Art Bailey Kavanaugh sends Jeffrey Leverton by text message four short audio clips, which he opens from his phone in a university parking lot after a marathon evening class. In each clip, she recites, in a cool, intimate monotone, random phrases that she's transcribed while listening to TV news. He turns his collar to the evening mist as he presses the phone close. Old enough at 64 to have sat through plenty of ironical, uninflected performance art things. Old enough to have thought it new and exciting to hear John Lennon defamiliarizing dance names through his nose on Revolution 9. The Watusi. The Twist. Leviton infers that Bailey's project intends to arrest him with the almost erotic meaninglessness and isolation of their times, not to mention his son's familiar nemesis, the culture. Except, hearing her voice now, he finds himself not saddened by the times, but instead transported to a secret cathedral in the heart of them. Was it voices all along for him? He tries to replay in his head the sounds of the significant voices from his younger life and finds that this is amazingly easy to do. And he's envious, although not in an unpleasant way, of how much artists like Bailey can achieve saying so little, while writers achieve so little by saying so much. Well, it's been a long teaching day, and he's so tired that anything will sound like an oasis from this parking lot. Tired enough nowadays that he can begin to feel grateful to be replaced. Your stories are the ones that need to be heard, he'll sometimes say to his first-generation students who look twelve. Grandstanding a little, yet his voice swells up with real feeling. But he will go home and share the clip with his 27-year-old son, who will nod and say, I was just thinking about Bailey. On vacation with Philip, Leviton tours the San Diego Museum of Art and finds himself suddenly weeping in unashamed wonder. Leviton, who'd been tone-deaf to paintings. He chokes up before a Roger Kuntz of a living room in Laguna. Where did the 1960s go? 
and how is it you can recognize them just by the interior light? In the Spanish Master's exhibit, he cries before the penitent Saint Mary Magdalene. Then he weeps before the Virgin Mary as a child asleep. It's the dramatic irony, he guesses, that undoes him. The future we know that the painted child can't. And this the painter captures by omission? Levitin won't ever explain it. It's the unspeakably consequential future that awaits every child unawares. Our minds are too small to hold this. What the 21st century needs, Levitin decides one day, is better wallet cards. He is shy. No paramedics, please. Adopt this neighbor as your own. Levitin's son enters the living room, flops on the couch, sighs, curses, leaves, and returns until the father explodes from his desk. Will you ever stop advertising your pain? The son shouts, I'm sorry, I guess my brain needs sustenance. Yes, it does, so go find some. Will you stop yelling? It's so predictable. Yes, it's predictable. I'm predictable. I'm a B-list writer. I need all the concentration I can get. The son says nothing. I'm going to Cafe Windsor, the father continues. Bye, Dad, his son replies, and not at all in the foghorn tone that he sometimes employs for rudimentary guilt. It's as innocent a goodbye as the father thinks he's ever heard, so absent any blame, while no less saddened. The echo of the father's exasperation hangs like a suit of clothes for goodwill, and there'll be no way in the father's lifetime he'll ever learn to thank the bigger party in the heat of a dispute. But he does so later, with his apology, and Philip thanks him, too. Instead of the regular visit from the young social worker, Alicia, who the father wishes would spend less time chatting about popular bands and more time teaching Philip how to balance life chores with play or how to sit on a bus without acting like you're being pelted by spitwads. Her agency today is hosting for its disabled clients a Telestar Awards ceremony at a banquet hall near the JCC. There, Philip, who has maintained a 4.0 average at the community college, will be honored with a trophy for education. Levitin is welcomed to attend, but he has his own full day of classes to teach. Philip is welcome to prepare a speech, but it's also totally fine if he doesn't. Of course, even the handshake on the dais could require some planning for a boy who could never properly lie. A boy who thinks the selves that other grown-ups carry into banquet rooms are somehow more real than his own, a boy who thinks his own options are limited to either unpardonable honesty or unpardonable artifice. It's like I have no self, he'll sometimes explain, to which the father sometimes jokes, you know they call that nirvana. But it's a nirvana that's left this exiled son still panicked by what to wear. The jeans have a coppery dinge. The shirt collar is rolled under on one side. The nice brogues look kind of stuck on, too, although the overall effect could pierce the right audience, Levitin thinks, remembering how it felt so long ago to keep trying to hide his socks beneath the cuffs of his khakis at Cody Castile's.
Levitin says, and his voice goes hoarse, Philip, I know you think this award is some kind of a joke, and I know you will do greater things, but you earned this. Hear me, please, what you've battled through. Take this in. After some apparent puzzlement over which reaction will get this moment to pass, Philip chooses out of nowhere an expression of outright sensibility. Okay, he decides. He is hiding his teeth in a smile because he hates his teeth, but it's a smile. How the non-speech goes, Levitin doesn't hear because Philip is so worn out upon return. So they go to their respective corners. It's near bedtime when Philip emerges for milk and meds. Bobby's given up on me, he says. Bobby is a high school reacquaintance, a high-functioning autistic, somewhat bossy in his opinions, but, as the father has pointed out, a friend, an actual friend within today's loose social media definition of the word. Tonight, one of the boys' online rants triggered Philip, who replied, You sound like my enemies. Levitin weighs this crisis. I bet it's fixable, he decides. Unless they really got to him. They? A long silence. I guess that might be paranoia, Philip says. Sundays, they attend an Episcopal church, or Geoffrey attends, while Philip stations himself on a folding chair in the empty social hall with a novel to read. Over months, years, he becomes recognized, then accepted, then warmly regarded by the mostly AOL generation congregants who stream in for muffins and coffee after the service. He learns to converse, to ask skillful questions. Ever so slowly, the kind of young adulthood Philip has envied and yearned for becomes too young for him, an age-inappropriate yearning. He has slumbered through a rite of passage that no longer will realistically excite him. He would stick out at a college party, not for his awkwardness, but his seriousness. He could arrive fully formed at age 30 to a new city, attend university, but if they ask what he did with his 20s, he would need some help planning the words. Say you tried to be a writer. You suffered a post-traumatic anxiety disorder, and you learned to live with it. And it gave you a weird maturity and immaturity rolled into one. This is me talking now. Maybe life hasn't been a straight line. Levitin feels sometimes that he's training a secret agent. And as he does so, the names of faraway cities the father is too old to romanticize take on a naive, vicarious promise again. Seattle, Champaign-Urbana, Omaha. Also, the father notices, when the Sunday regulars fail to reciprocate with friendly conversational questions for Philip, it's often on them, not Philip. It's ordinary gracelessness. The son is rebuffed only in the same way just about everyone is by the 2010s. But once in the car, taxed by an hour's interactions, Philip seethes to Jeffrey and Daniel and Zoe about his social failures all the way home. On the dining room table, Levitin finds a Who Am I questionnaire that Philip has completed for the social worker. I've been successful at my last two semesters of school. I will reach my goals because I am 
studious. I am loved by mom and dad. Levitin's eye moves past the inevitable blank lines. I like myself because I'm an expert at I have a natural talent for and sees this. The person I admire most is my dad. Levitin's first thought is a kind of reverent alarm. How would a better man receive this? He looks like George Bush reading to schoolchildren on 9-11 after the aide has whispered something in his ear. The bombshell is inconveniently timed, something to live up to just when Levitin has reached an age when he longs to be less nice in every way. Add to this Levitin's awareness that his son probably admires him for things that Levitin no longer admires, like being a more employable but inarguably more bogus version of his son, like knowing what to say a good deal of the time. He does feel proud that he hadn't sent Philip to Borden Carey that summer when the gables shut down, all those over-medicated souls gazing from the windows. But Levitin can't judge the other family's choices. For him, there'd been so much luck involved. What amazes him is that amid a staggering paranoid illness, his son has chosen at key moments to believe someone who loves him. Imagine this. For someone with a paranoid psychosis to trust in someone else's reality, a reality that's opposite his own mind, what a thin reed to clutch. How had he done it? Was it grace? Was it God? And if so, why so little of it? Amazement at ordinary heroism. That's another thing that fools like Levitin come to feel. At an age when nothing else feels good, why does it feel so good to feel pain? How glad Levitin is that he never cried his last tear. What a cough Philip had when they'd landed this apartment. Ehu, ehu, all through the night, like some biblical lament. Then listing over the wood floor, the vomit dropping to the floor before it warned of coming up. That did it for Levitin, and on Philip's new med they'd been told to watch for embolism. So they headed to the ER, but Levitin parked timidly in a long-term structure, thinking it much closer to admissions than it was. It had to have been a mile of indoor corridors with painted arrows, Levitin navigating, pale Phillips straggling behind. Naturally, the CT showed widespread pneumonia, aspiration variety, a permanent hazard of nighttime drooling. Naturally, they caught it barely in time. Naturally, the hospital bed at full extension was comically short for a man of six foot four. But for the duration of his hospital stay, watched over by his father and mother and by a series of nurses through the glass of his quarantined room. The son was more genial than at almost any time since he'd learned to walk. It wasn't just the fever, either. He joked with Levitin and Nola, a steady burble of exquisitely timed and often nonsensical cocktail-hour banter. How easily he had taken to being nurtured there. How fortunate his readiness to comply a quality Levitin never had and never would. Ruling out the possibility of a Father's Day breakfast in the works, 
because he smells nothing, and because Philip most years barely scribbles a card, Levitin is doubly surprised when his son does in fact plod into Levitin's bedroom extending a plate of eggs, bacon, and toast, announcing, as if Levitin's own father joylessly completing a boot camp for liberated men, here. On Labor Day, they sit with boxed lunches beneath a tree in two facing camping chairs, the cup holder and canvas kind that telescope into a canvas sleeve. Right away, Philip smears tomato on his favorite white T-shirt, an accident that sends Jeffrey to the restroom to get wet paper towels. But the stain only spreads. It will have to be sprayed with shout when they get home. Philip, offering his unique brand of consolation, says that he'd expected to ruin the shirt anyway, and Levitin, after a slight show of how furious such resignation makes him, struggles up from the chair to weakly toss his son a football. As if overnight, in one's middle sixties, warm-up tosses are the whole game. How high the sky seems, and how thin the air. And the new way the grassy earth seems to lift toward you on its own. It's like he's a prankster running out onto the field of the Colosseum, only stadium security has turned on a magnetic force field that triples the earth's gravity. The two are mutually grateful to play, and just as grateful to drive home. Remember that year, says Levitin, as they pass Golden West College, when you tried to finish out a semester here, and one night you left your notebook in class? You were so tired and overwhelmed, but a girl in class followed you outside to return your book? I can barely remember, his son says. I was just surviving. I know it. And that same night, a stranger paid for my protein bar at Cal State, and any time anything happened that felt lucky or kind back then, I would feel kind of sick and well at the same time. Every day I made you an egg salad sandwich to take in your lunch, and you ate it and slept on the grass between your morning class and your night class. And I would ask if it was enough for you, and you said it was. I just loved and hated how it was enough for you. The 22 freeway has become 7th Street, a few miles from home, and Levitin considers picking up some notes from his university office, but ultimately drives past, best to get dinner going, feed and walk the dog. Wow, Philip, we could have picnicked right here at Recreation Park. Levitin's hobby now is finding the easier option. We didn't have to go all the way to Huntington. I've never been to Recreation Park. Sure you have, Levitin says, switching on the car radio, and as soon as he hears the tinny acoustics of a live press conference, he knows it's something terrible. A boat had 35 aboard when it caught fire. Only five survivors, only eight bodies found. Levitin's breath shortens, and his throat seizes up, and he clicks the radio off. I always thought age and experience made a person less sensitive. I can't filter anything anymore. Me neither, says Philip. In half a year, Levitin will have heard about the spread of a novel virus in Wuhan, China, and all the suffering there. Would a plague reach our shores? Maybe every generation sips from that cup eventually. Maybe his generation has outrun disaster longer than most. Belatedly, he'll be one with human history. Boat fires, 
and school shootings, on the other hand, with those live audio feeds with cameras clicking and whirring, are something different, random, violent, and obscene. It feels almost like his duty to repudiate them. Music, then? Leviton punches a button, and 70s pop has never sounded worse. Quiet is nice. You know what we could do for dinner, Leviton says after a moment? Smoothies. We haven't had smoothies since last summer. With the leftover Vaughn's chicken. And fries. That sounds good, Philip says, with the unique relief he expresses when a sound next step is identified, such as fries. And I'll text Mom, as I do every day. There is no self-criticism in this comment. And the new fruit bowl we ordered shall be in the mail area. Amazon delivers on holidays. Leviton feels his own mood rising. In the parking garage, Leviton carries the delivery under one arm to the elevator, scrolling a neighborhood discussion forum on his phone. Beware ring thieves. No one can spell, he grumbles, even in the wealthy part of Long Beach. Would I have a girlfriend if I lived in L.A.? Philip asks. Maybe. I think I'm done with cities, though. I think about the desert sometimes. Or Montrose. The elevator bongs, and a neighbor couple, black, retired, join them, which means Leviton will do the embarrassing thing where he brings strangers up to speed on the cute thing he's discussing with his son. Where do you think a 27-year-old kid should go to live? Not that he drives me crazy or anything. And they all laugh. Well, he's a big guy. He can live anywhere he wants. Then the neighbors debark on floor two. I have to get away from here soon. Philip says. Leviton postpones this thought, or he keeps it aloft in a softer, curious way. Where do you picture being? L.A., I guess, although I've never been to Portland. Leviton nods, unlocking their unit door. They've reached the end of summer vacation, like a Sunday times ten. It's both a sorrow and a relief to prepare their heads for the challenges of the week. If you take that shirt off, I'll soak it, but you have to walk the dog for me. After the smoothies and the fries, Philip gulps down his meds, then seats himself on the unit's west-facing couch to watch the room go dark with the sunset, one floppy hand patting the family dog. It's been a very nice apartment to them, for the most part, thinks Leviton, despite the fact no one reads in this town despite the vengeful music from the scavengers on bikes down below. A thankful boredom, though already, he knows, his son strains against the boredom, just as Leviton no longer does. Philip exchanges goodnight texts with Nola as Leviton lingers, beholding him there, safe. Alan Rifkin's novels, essays, and short stories of Los Angeles have been published widely, including by Lawrence Ferlinghetti's City Lights Publishers, Gordon Lish's fiction journal The Quarterly from Vintage Books, and in numerous print and digital anthologies. He's the author of Signal Hill Stories, Burdens by Water, an Unintended Memoir, and co-author with We Five's Jerry Bergen of Wounds to Bind, a memoir of the folk rock revolution, 
Find out more about him at www.alanrifkin.com. Intro music is from the song Slow, performed by Sally Dworsky, written by Sally Dworsky and Chris Hickey, available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, and all other streaming platforms. Podcast art by Ryan Longnecker. Special thanks to Chip Rice, John Gould, Gary Commons, Sheila Finch, and Brandon Cook. Thank you for streaming this edition of The Last We Fake.